Is home always the best and preferred place of death? An analysis article published in the BMJ challenges the current orthodoxy that home is the best and preferred place of death for most people, pointing out limitations in the evidence underpinning our understanding of where people would prefer to die and calling for greater attention to the experience of dying overall, not just for place of death. I'm Navjoit Lada, analysis editor, and I'm joined now by the author of the article, Dr Christian Pollock of the School of Health Sciences at Nottingham University. Hello, Christian. Hello, hello. Hi, thanks so much for joining us. Christian, as you point out in the article, we're in a situation in the UK and in a number of other countries where place of death has become an indicator of quality of end of life care. What do we know about how the public and patients feel about place of death? Right, okay. I think there's there's several issues to um, comment on there. I think the understanding that home is the preferred place of death has become very, very widely accepted. And as I've suggested in the article, the evidence underpinning that is not as clear-cut or as strong as is generally assumed. So the conventional assumption and the finding that is returned from most public uh, surveys and and patient data is that around two-thirds of people say they would like to die at home. Um, That still leaves a third by these um, reference points who don't want to die, who say they don't want to die at home. But what we're looking at here is an uncertainty about the nature of the information that is provided, particularly if you start with public surveys, um, where roughly two-thirds of people quite consistently say they would die at home. But we've got very little understanding about how people understand the question or the context in which they um, are asked the question. So we have very little understanding about how people understand what it would be like to die at home, what they're actually imagining dying at home would be like. And if you ask people who are young and relatively well and healthy, how they anticipate a very hypothetical and distant future, their responses are likely to be very, very different from from the the experience of people who are actually confronting the reality of a very limited life expectancy uh, and and an impending death. So I think we have to contextualize how we understand that kind of data in a more critical way than has perhaps often been done. And similarly, if we ask patients, and there have been different kinds of study um, approaching this, the evidence suggests again that people will say, majority of people will say they would like to die at home, but that preference seems to change quite frequently in response to experience. And there is an assumption that if you ask people about their preference for place of death, that will be a kind of stable response. Whereas in actual fact, the evidence suggests that people may be quite volatile in their preferences. And most particularly, the evidence suggests that people are not necessarily viewing the place of death as the key um, and most important aspect of the experience of dying. They might prefer to die at home, but they're very pragmatic and very cautious often in how they anticipate the future. And they're very aware that they don't know what's going to happen or how they're going to respond or what the options will be. And so they're much less um, committed, in a way, to the idea of dying at home in in many cases than is often assumed. And um, in recent surveys, which have actually started quite recently, it's quite surprising, I think, that people haven't looked at the priority that people give to dying at home. They've asked them where they want to die, but they haven't usually asked them how important it is. 
Um, and if we look at recent surveys, you know, which do ask that question, you find that place of death is quite far down the list of um, things that are important to people. So I think we just really need to look at this and contextualize the evidence that we've got, which is quite sort of varied in terms of methodology and in terms of the type and range of studies that have been produced. And that also makes it hard to interpret the, the wider picture. Okay. Um, so taking those caveats into account, when we explore these um, the studies um, and surveys of patient and public opinion, how does place of death compare to other aspects of the experience of dying? What other things are seen as being important? Well, pain, um, freedom from pain is obviously very important. And broadly also um, the being accompanied by close friends and relatives, being being. Uh, accompanied uh, through the process of dying tend to come out as being the critical things, the things that people um, are most concerned about. And so actually what you're saying is sometimes we overlook those other important aspects because we're so focused on on place of death as being being important to people. That's right. And also place of death is very easy to document and consequently it's very easy to measure and it's a very convenient, very handy um, indicator of end-of-life care, but say pain control is much more complex and varied, harder to assess, harder to document, perhaps harder to deliver in some cases. Um, and similarly, the, the wider context of the um, experience of dying, whether or not people were accompanied, uh, in, in what context, these are harder to record and assess, I think. Mm. Mm. Um Another thing you talk about in the article is um, choice at the end of life. Um, you say, I'm just going to quote you now, the current marriage of palliative care with consumerist ideologies of patient choice promotes the view that the place and even manner of death and dying is largely a matter of volition. Um, what do we know about choice at the end of life? Is it valued? Is it exercised? I think we know very, very little. I think there is an assumption, and this is very much in line with the current emphasis on, on patient-centered care and the idea about delivering choice and trying to extend that idea towards the end of life, where it may actually be very difficult to deliver in the first instance. And secondly, um, I think there are real questions about how relevant or important it is to many patients. So there's the idea that you can empower, that choice is in some way empowering uh, to patients and that in a way you can kind of make up, if you like, for the um, vulnerability and the, um, the, the misfortune of the experience of dying by enabling people to have choice in advance of the event. But I think um, it would be a very interesting question to explore, first of all, whether people perceive themselves to be exercising choice and what they perceive those choices to be and how important it would be for them to do so. And closely related to that, of course, is, is people's involvement in decision-making about end-of-life care. Um, but there is, I think, again, some evidence which suggests that people may find the responsibility of making choices where the outcomes are all intrinsically negative to be sometimes burdensome and perhaps even risky. And there is a tension sometimes between um, a preference and an ability to um, commit trust to the professionals and services that are caring uh, for you and this rather more active consumerist search for um, knowledge and independent um, decision-making. And, and, and I think we just know very little about this, actually. Mm. So again, much like place of death, um, choice around um, end-of-life 
decisions can again seem like a sort of proxy for quality where perhaps we we don't know that to be the case yes i think so i i think i think it, it, one one of the um I suppose one of the aims of the, the article is just to say, look, things are very much more complex and uncertain than is very often assumed to be the case. And we really need to explore and unpick this a, a little bit more, a lot more, actually. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, another thing um, that we're also urged is to carefully plan in advance for death. And while, you know, thinking about death, having conversations about dying where appropriate, these seem like intuitively good things. Um, it's, of course, true that it's only experienced once as it happens. Um, so this ties into what you were alluding to earlier, that um, when you have a choice, to what extent do people feel kind of bound by them and unable to change their minds once their experience perhaps changes? Yes, and I, I think the the idea about planning for the future and for um, place of care and other um, other things which might be potentially um, optional um, assumes that people have a much greater anticipation, I think, or knowledge of what the future will hold than is often the case. And certainly there is evidence that people might have reported a preference for place of death, but quite often that might change or they might end up in hospital. But that might be recorded as them dying in the wrong place, as it were, but we'd know very little about um, how those changes um, happen or how they might be experienced. And we also know, and this is um, a, a, a consistent feature from the Voices, uh, National Voices Survey of bereaved relatives, is that regardless of what patients' preferences were reported to be in advance of death, the majority of the relatives who took part in the survey felt that they had died in the appropriate place. So it's very hard for people to anticipate what the future is going to be like and how they're going to respond to it. And the evidence we have often from qualitative studies uh, about patient um, perspectives on this suggests that they're very kind of realistic and pragmatic. Uh, and as I say, they don't necessarily see themselves as having choice. It is more perhaps that they're going to be driven by or responding to circumstances rather outside their control. So the idea of exerting choice and planning for the future tends to suggest that people have choices and that they have a sort of control over the future. And there is this idea that if you plan, if you document your plans, you can get on and live your life and everything is sorted. Um, but the reality may turn out to be very, very different. And if people do have um, express preferences, and certainly if the family, for example, is aware of that, there may be a sense, and, and also for health professionals, there may be a sense of you know, a really desperate commitment to try and honour that stated preference, perhaps even beyond the point where the patient can, can, can express a view, which may you know, pose difficulties and perhaps present a, a substantial burden on, on those around the, the patient. And it's also set up a kind of sense of failure and guilt if the notional plan can't actually be uh, adhered to. Right, which seems counter counterproductive. Um, now, you mentioned health professionals, and many of our listeners and the readers of your article will be clinicians involved in end-of-life care. Can you talk a little bit about the evidence for how professionals and patients communicate about issues relating to the end of life? Okay. I mean, I think with, uh, with some difficulty often, um, particularly if we're looking at... Um, sort of community care or sort of generalist care outside the sort of very specialist palliative care um, roles where they're obviously more um, practiced, perhaps experienced. But the evidence suggests that professionals may find it very difficult to judge the point at which they should introduce the sort of topic 
of end-of-life care and the fact that people may be dying. And one of the issues around this is that it's just so incredibly hard to predict very often, um, particularly for patients who are not affected by cancer, but not exclusively so. It can be really hard to anticipate the um, prognosis, even though there is the assumption that this is fairly straightforward and that it's possible and desirable to identify when patients have entered the last year of life. Um, and the ideal is that when that point had been reached, professionals would sort of move in to um, raise the issue, to discuss the issue, to make these plans for, for end-of-life care. So the uncertainty about prognosis is a real barrier, and that, that's quite a strong theme, I think. Also, professionals are very wary of offending patients, of distressing them, and of spoiling the relationship that they might have spent a long time trying, trying to build up. So they tend to be very cautious to perhaps to search for cues, sort of windows of opportunity where the patient may indicate um, an openness to discuss the topic. And in some cases, um, patients may be quite upfront, but that seems to be relatively uncommon. And so when professionals may then offer um, by a rather sort of indeterminate or vague use of language um, to invite the patient to take up the the discussion, and then of course the patient can back off. And uh, professionals that we've spoken to suggest that if that happens, they will very quickly respond to that and withdraw, retreat, um, and perhaps raise the topic another day. But it seems that the in incidents of discussions about end-of-life care are not very common and not very extensive. And of course, they very vary greatly between them. Um, between patients and settings. But there is this idea also that if you use very vague language, which has the benefit of protecting participants from embarrassment and, and awkwardness, you also leave open the potential for misunderstandings and misinterpretation. So a very common type of um, phrase or expression that we've heard um, described is the professional might say, um, if you were to become more poorly, where would you like to be cared for? And of course, they're kind of offering the opportunity for the patient to discuss where they would like to die. But that could be subject to a very different interpretation by the patient. You know, what is meant by poorly? Um, where would I like to be cared for? Kind of elides the distinction between a preference for place of care and a preference for place of death. And I think this is a very important distinction, which has often not been picked up or attended to, that people may want to stay at home for as long as they can. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're very strongly committed, perhaps, to staying at home till to the point of death. Mm. These are such um, kind of complex conversations. Um, and you mentioned that it's particularly um, a challenge for gen you know, generalist um, clinicians versus special more specialist palliative care um, doctors or nurses working in that field. Um, to what extent does continuity help? Um, I mean, I'm a GP and I'm just thinking about how actually some of that, the awkwardness around that conversation and um, what you judge to be the expectations of the patients can be weighed against, you know, a, a relationship with a patient. Yes, I think that's that, that's an interesting question, and I think it's very variable. I think people approach this in different ways. So, you know, we've we've, we've talked to health professionals who've said that where they have a very strong relationship with the patient, and where perhaps they spent a considerable amount of time really kind of helping them to. Um, uh, to live, to kind of cope with life, to kind of get over the symptoms, to deal with them, to suddenly change the register and introduce the topic of death and dying seems like a kind of betrayal and, and they're very, they find that very difficult to do. Uh, we've also found others who say that actually from a strong relationship it's easier to do that, that it is um, 
um, you know, where, where there's a, an established relationship and, and a trust that that's, they would feel awkward perhaps introducing the topic cold. But then again, other professionals have said, well, it partly depends on their role. And sometimes if they're a palliative care specialist brought in fairly late in the day, you know, they're accustomed perhaps to introducing the topic um, without much prior relationship or knowledge of the patient. So I think it varies very greatly, actually. Mm. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, and it's clear from what you're describing, there's still a lot that we need to understand about about this process overall. Um, and you, you call for greater attention to the experience of dying um, in the article and to improve that experience wherever someone might be dying, be that at home, in a hospice or in hospital. Um, what do you think are the research priorities here? Um, I would like more research into understanding public and patient um, expectations and anticipation of death and dying and the importance of place and other factors. So I think we, we need to know a lot more about the experience, uh, how people anticipate these things and how they rank them, whether or not they see themselves as making choices or not, if it's important to them to make choices or not. I think we need much more knowledge of the experience of death and dying um, in different settings, um, whether it be hospice, hospital, care home or personal private home um, and, and I think we, we don't know sort of too much about that in a very kind of detailed nuanced way for example that um, some kinds of qualitative study not can can, can offer um, it's not just that you need qualitative work in this area but I think it has a lot to offer um, and there's perhaps not been a great deal um, done so far um, so yes I mean I think I would want to pick up on the policy being driven much more by evidence from the uh, patients and the public, I think there have been a tendency to make a lot of assumptions um, and perhaps to focus on certain aspects of the evidence that we have at the expense of the more complex picture. So I think we really need to get a good evidence base to um, underpin the development of policy going forward. So lots, lots to do there. Um, well, Dr. Christian Pollock, thanks so much for joining us and for your really thoughtful and interesting points there. Um, Dr. Pollock's article, Is Home Always the Best and Preferred Place of Death, is now available on the bmj.com. <laughs>